The Old Testament reading is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. The New Testament reading will be Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your, am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let us go now to Ephesians four seventeen through 32 Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. 
Brothers and sisters, we desperately need to grow in our moral maturity. And by we, I mean we as a society, but even more so, we as the church. It would be wonderful to live in a society that was morally mature. Wouldn't you agree with that? But it is essential that the church possess moral maturity. For God has called His people to be holy just as He is holy. The church must be morally mature. I want you to think of it. God has given His people His moral law. The moral law is displayed in nature for all to see, but it is revealed with great precision and clarity in the Holy Scriptures. God is obviously concerned that His people live morally mature lives. He has given His people His moral law. When God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage to make a great nation of them, He gave them His moral law. He spoke these Ten Commandments to them from Sinai. Later, they would be written on stone by the finger of God and deposited in the Ark of the Covenant to be kept throughout Israel's history. So clearly, God expected His people to live morally upright lives. He redeemed them from bondage and gave them His moral law. And this pattern is very significant. It tells us something about the purpose for redemption. Israel was redeemed from bondage to worship and serve the Lord. That is what this narrative of the, of the Exodus tells us. They were redeemed from bondage, not to live for themselves, but to worship and to serve the Lord, to live in obedience to His law. And the same may be said for our redemption in Christ. When God redeemed sinners from the domain of darkness, when He transfers them into the kingdom of His beloved Son, He writes His moral law, not on stone, but upon their hearts by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So do you see the similarity? Redemption followed by the giving of His moral law. For Israel, redemption from Egypt and the moral law spoke from Sinai and written on stone in Christ. Redemption from the power of the evil one, from sin, from the fear of death. And this moral law is written upon the hearts of His people. This is what that often cited passage in Jeremiah 31 says, speaking of the coming new covenant, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So then you can see that the moral law of God is central to the new covenant too. We have been redeemed in Christ to worship and serve the Lord. The redemption is for a purpose. We have been redeemed so that we might glorify God by worshiping Him in the way that He has prescribed, by serving Him in the whole of life, by living in obedience to Him. When we compare the old and new covenants, we find many differences. In fact, we would say that the old and new covenants are not only externally different, they are substantially different, but they are similar in some respects. And here is one way in which they are similar. God's people under the old and new covenants are called to be holy as God is holy. And this similarity can be easily demonstrated and seen in, in Peter's epistle, the first one, 1 Peter 1, 14-16. Here the Apostle Peter wrote to New Covenant, the New Covenant people of God, saying, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. What is the exhortation that Peter is bringing to, to the Christians to whom he writes? Christians living under the 
new covenant. He says, now that you've been redeemed in Christ, now that your sins have been washed away, be holy just as He who called you is holy. Be holy just as your Heavenly Father is holy. And then he cites from the Old Testament, uh, that is to say from Leviticus 11, 44, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the Old and New Covenant people of God are called to holy living. Uh, there, is, there is this similarity between the two covenants. We are called to be holy as God is holy, brothers and sisters. And what is our standard for holiness? What is our standard for holiness? Well, we have just heard that God is. We are to be holy as He is holy. But we know that God has given us His moral law. His moral law is an extension of Himself. It, it, is, it is a manifestation of His holy character. God has given us His law. We are to follow His moral law. We are to live in obedience to Him. So then when God calls His people to be holy as He is holy, He means that we are to obey His law Jesus Himself said, Whoever has My commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves Me. So to love God is to keep His commandments, and to keep God's commandments is to love Him. We must not separate these two things, brothers and sisters. Throughout the Scriptures we find this warning. It is a contradiction to say, I love God, and then to live in disobedience to Him. To live... In obedience to God is to love Him, and to love Him is to live in obedience to Him, you see. Yes, God has first set His love upon us. His love has been freely given. Of course, this is true. But those who love God will live in obedience to Him. They will live a life marked by true and authentic repentance, in other words. I think you can see how this teaching is prone to misunderstanding. If the only thing I ever said to you was this, to love God is to keep His commandments, and to keep God's commandments is to love Him. Then you could accuse me of being a legalist, if that was the only thing I ever said to you. You see how this, this statement here can, can tend towards legalism. It gives the impression that the only thing God has called us to do is to obey Him, you see. Uh, and when we obey Him, we love Him, and when we love Him, we obey Him, you see. A, a legalist speaks in that way, but this is not all that the Scriptures say, and neither is it the only thing that I say to you. You must be found in Christ, friends. You must trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. You cannot be justified before God by law-keeping, for we are all sinners. We have broken God's law and stand guilty before Him, and for this reason we can only be made right with God through faith in Jesus the Messiah, who lived for sinners, died for sinners, and rose again for sinners. This is the way to life eternal. This is the gospel. The gospel must be preached. But here is my concern. While the air of legalism must be avoided, there are many in our day who will preach the gospel to the neglect of the law. They are not legalists. These make the opposite error. These are antinomians. The legalist preaches the law to the neglect of the gospel, but the antinomian preaches the gospel to the neglect of the law. What we must see is that in the Scriptures, law and gospel go together hand in hand. The law properly understood and the gospel properly understood, they're not enemies, they're dear friends. The Lord uses them both to save and to sanctify His people. And so both the law and the gospel must be faithfully preached. Both the law and the gospel must loom large in the minds of God's people. Yes, run to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Be comforted by the gospel that God has shown mercy to sinners, that He has provided a way for salvation. But do not forget God's call upon His people. Be holy as I am holy. And what is the standard for holiness except God's moral law? Brothers and sisters, God's moral law 
has been disregarded by our culture. This is not terribly surprising, isn't it? That God's moral law has been disregarded by our culture. I will tell you what is surprising and much more concerning. It is that God's moral law has been disregarded by many within the modern church today. And we must regain it. We must know what it says. We must know what it requires and forbids. We must learn to live according to it and with wisdom in this world. Yes, we have been made holy through faith in Christ. Through faith in Him, His blood has washed away all of our sins. But do not forget that those united to Christ by faith are called to be holy just as our Father in Heaven is holy. Or to quote the words of Jesus to His Father is, You therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. These are the words of Christ Himself. You yourselves must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Well, do you see how this this principle operates? On the one hand, it immediately makes us aware of our need for forgiveness because we realize we are not perfect. And yet at the same time, it calls us to live a life in obedience to God and to His law. Where is God's standard found for us? In the Holy Scriptures in general and His moral law in particular. The Holy Scriptures reveal to us what man ought to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So I hope you could understand why we are moving so slowly through the Ten Commandments. We could move more slowly, by the way. Um, We are moving slowly. It could be more slow. But we're moving slowly because God's moral law is so important to the people of God, even under the New Covenant. Do not believe the lie that that the, the New Covenant is only about grace and not about law. It is not true. Indeed, the New Covenant is about grace. But the law should be dear to our hearts, brothers and sisters. And here in the Ten Commandments, we find God's moral law summarized for us. Today we come to the eighth of the Ten Commandments, which is, You shall not steal. This is such a brief commandment. You shall not steal. Four words, easy to memorize, right? You shall not steal. It is such a brief commandment, but do not let its brevity fool you. This commandment is profound in its implications. To steal is to take what rightfully belongs to another person, either by deceit or by force. One of the moral truths implied by the Eighth Commandment is that people have a right to possess personal property. That might seem obvious to you, but it's not obvious to all. There have been many in the history of the world, and indeed there are many in the world today, who do not respect personal property. Some even regard personal property as a selfish evil. Perhaps you've heard this view from some within the world even today. But friends, you need to see that this view does not square with God's moral law. The second table of the Ten Commandments teaches that human life is to be honored. And the Eighth Commandment is clear that one of the ways human life is to be honored is by respecting personal property. How are we to come to have possessions of our own? Here I am referring to things as basic as this, food to eat, clothes to wear, shelter. How are we to come into the possession of these things? God's moral law says, not by taking what belongs to others by force or deceit, But by your own labor, we are to work and thus earn a living. You know, in our highly affluent and materialistic age, we can sometimes forget that human beings cannot survive without personal property. 
Have you ever thought about this? We have so much. We have such an abundance. Rarely do our minds even go here to the fact that without personal property, without material possessions, our lives would come to an end. God alone has life in Himself. We live because God gives us life and sustains us in the world that He has made. We are not independent creatures, but dependent creatures. We are needy. We depend upon God to sustain us. And how does He sustain us except in and through the world that He has made? We need food. We need water. We need shelter and clothing. And the point that I am here making is that the Eighth Commandment really is about honoring human life. To take away a man's possessions, if done enough, is to take away his life. And the Eighth Commandment helps us to see this. When the law says you shall not steal, it means that human life is to be honored by respecting the property of others. I want you to remember the connection. The Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother, establishes that honor is to be shown to all human beings in a way that fits their God-given position in life. So parents are to be honored by their children, and children are to be honored by their parents. And this is true of all who bear the image of God. All image bearers are to be shown honor. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder, teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to the end of it. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to the beginning of it. And now the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to the maintenance, flourishing, or prosperity of it from the moment of conception until death. One of the ways that we are to honor people is by respecting their property. When we teach the Eighth Commandment to little children, we may apply it to them by telling them not to take candy from the store without paying for it, or something like that. Indeed, that is a proper application of the Eighth Commandment. Do not, do not steal Do not take what does not belong to you, either by deceit or by force. Don't take a piece of candy from the store and put it in your pocket and walk out with it. It is not yours. You must pay for it. To to be deceitful in that way is to steal. It is to violate the Eighth Commandment. But here, brothers and sisters, I want for you to see this. As we grow up, we must learn to think about the Eighth Commandment more maturely. Not only does this commandment forbid what we might call petty theft, it requires and forbids much more by way of implication. You know, it has been my custom in this sermon series on the Ten Commandments to refer to our catechism when asking which each of these Ten Commandments requires and forbids. Our our catechism is very helpful. It, It does not only help us to see what the commandments require or forbid in an obvious or superficial way, Uh, But to see the implications of the commandments as they are fleshed out by reason and in accordance with the example set forth in Holy Scripture. This morning, I will read from three catechisms. The Baptist Catechism, which is ours, the Westminster Larger, and the Heidelberg. Each one is beautiful in its own way. First, the Baptist Catechism, which is beautiful in its brevity. What is required in the Eighth Commandment? That is question 79. Listen carefully to the answer that is given. I think it is profound. The Eighth Commandment, which is you shall not steal, requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Did you hear that? The word 
stealing is not even contained within this answer. Because here, it is not just the simple commandment being restated. The implications of it are being fleshed out. The Eighth Commandment requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. What is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever does or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. Now the Westminster Larger Catechism, which I think is beautiful in its thoroughness. It's much longer. What are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? That is question 141 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Listen carefully to the answer. The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone his due restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof, giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others, moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods, a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustentation of our nature and suitable to our condition a lawful calling and diligence in it, frugality, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship or other like engagements and all endeavors, by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. I wanted to read that to you, brothers and sisters, so that you might know that, first of all, the Westminster Larger Catechism exists, so that you might go to it to use it for yourself. But do you see the way in which it fleshes out the implications very carefully of the Eighth Commandment for us. This is what I am talking about when I refer to moral maturity. The Eighth Commandment does not just forbid children from stealing candy from the grocery store. It requires so much more. We're to take these moral principles, you shall not steal, and we're to see what it implies, you see. This implies so many things for us. I could read also question 142, which asks, What are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? I will not do so at this time. You can go and look at Westminster Larger Catechism 142 on your own time. It also is very detailed. It is beneficial for us when we try to pursue moral maturity. Now for the Heidelberg Catechism, which in my opinion is beautiful in its style. I could also refer to the Orthodox Catechism, which is the Baptist version of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, But here, the Heidelberg is well known in the world, and so I will quote from it. Question 110. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, punishable by law, But in God's sight, theft also includes all scheming and swindling in order to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of His gifts." Question 111 of the Heidelberg, what does God require of you in this commandment? The answer is brief here. That I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I work faithfully 
so that I may share with those in need. Isn't that beautiful? I think that it is. Uh, Brothers and sisters, you see that we must possess moral maturity in this world. We must learn to think carefully about God's moral law, to flesh out its implications. And it's one thing, of course, to know God's law, what it requires and forbids. It's another thing to keep it. Brothers and sisters, we must keep God's law. As I read the answers to these catechisms, what does the Eighth Commandment require and forbid was the question. Five key points emerged in all of these answers. One, God's moral law forbids men and women, boys and girls, from taking what rightfully belongs to others, either by dishonesty, deceit, or force. Some violations of the Eighth Commandment are blatant and obvious. When a man robs a bank, he violates the Eighth Commandment. All would agree upon that. When a child steals candy from the store, she violates the Eighth. But do not forget that when employees add hours to their time card that they did not work, they violate the Eighth Commandment. When the mechanic who overcharges a gullible customer or an employee who fails to pay his employee, and it, when an employer fa- fails to pay his employee the agreed upon wage, these also are violations of the Eighth Commandment. Proverbs 11.1 1 speaks to the dishonest violations of the Eighth Commandment when it says that a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. What does this proverb mean? What is it talking about when it's talking about balances? A balance here is referring to the balance of a scale used for measuring some material, be it wheat or gold or some other thing. Uh, throughout the history of the world, merchants and bankers have been known to to use false weights so that they profit more from an exchange. And here in Proverbs 11.1, 1, we see that this practice, this, this practice of deceit is an abomination to the Lord. That's a strong word, isn't it? Abomination. When the Lord sees the children of men act in this way, to, to, when, they, when the Lord sees the children of men stealing from one another in this deceitful way, the Lord considers it an abomination. And so we must see it as an abomination too. We must take no part in it at all. We must not steal. We must not take what rightfully belongs to others either by deceit or force. Two, the Eighth Commandment requires us to work faithfully, to provide for ourselves and those under our care. Work is not even mentioned in the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal is the commandment. But the implication is that we then are to work in order to rightfully procure wealth for ourselves. We're to encourage others to do the same. This is the flip side of the coin, if you will. How are we to provide for ourselves and those under our care? We are to furnish ourselves with the provisions we need to live, not by stealing, but by doing honest work. I want you to notice that this is how Paul interpreted the Eighth Commandment in his letter to the church in Ephesus. By the way, that passage that was read earlier is really a marvelous passage. If you pay careful attention to what Paul is doing there, he is alluding to the second table of God's moral law throughout that passage that we have read. He doesn't quote the second table of the moral law word for word at all, but there are, well, he does a little bit, but not throughout the whole thing. There are constant allusions to to the moral law there, and he's applying it to New Covenant Christians Uh, For our purposes this morning, I will read again his words in Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal. You have been redeemed in Christ Jesus. You've been made new. Your sins have been washed away. You are God's children now in the covenant of grace. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather, here's the flip side of the coin, the implication of the Eighth Commandment, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need, you see. This is how we are to come to have our own possessions, and this is how we are to come to have enough so that we might even share with the needy who are around us. Brothers and sisters, we are to provide for ourselves by working so long as we are able. And our work is to be honest work. That is to say, work that is good, work that is God-honoring. Evidently, this was a problem in the early church. We know that some in Thessalonica refused to work A careful study of that letter will reveal that they refused to work because they had a a defunct eschatology. They thought the Lord was coming back uh, immediately. Um, We're to live, of course, with that sense of expectation that the Lord could come today. That was true even of the the first century church. But, But they reasoned in this way, the Lord is surely coming back immediately, so I'm not going to work. Paul had some strong words for the church in Thessalonica. Now we command you, brothers... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So if, there's any, if there are any among you who are, who are walking in idleness, we'll come to see that what he means is refusing to work though they are able. The church is to keep away from them. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, Paul says. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. We know that it was the custom of Paul and other missionaries with him to work as they ministered the gospel in these towns, as they planted churches. He's saying, "I, I set an example for you, and so did those who... Were with me. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. It's a firm rebuke, isn't it? So anyone who is able to work but is not willing to do so, find them, let them not eat. This kind of runs contrary to our impulse, doesn't it? If, if we see a brother without food, what is, our, what is our impulse except to give that brother some food to eat? But Paul says, not in this instance. If they have not food to eat because of their idleness, don't give them food to eat. And this will be a proper motivation for them to eat. For we hear, Paul continues to say, that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. In fact, that is what happens. When we are not busy at work, we become busy bodies. We find ourselves wrapped up in other people's business. Perhaps we're given over to to gossip or to fruitless pursuits of other kinds. Now such persons, I continue, we command and exhort and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So the Eighth Commandment, which is you shall not steal, requires this, what Paul has just said. Everything that Paul has just said to the Thessalonians um, is rooted in the Eighth Commandment, which is you shall not steal. To refuse to work if you are able to work is to steal. You must be fed, clothed, and sheltered. These things cost money. That's how things work, at least in our economy. And if you will not provide for yourself and others, then and those who are under your care, then others are forced to provide for you. And here I am saying that this is a form of theft. 
Now, clearly what I'm saying here does not pertain to those who are retired, uh, to stay-at-home mothers, to those who are independently wealthy even, to those who are ill or infirmed. We have the responsibility and privilege to care for these who are ill or infirmed. But when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he had in mind those, again, who were able to work and those who needed to work because they did not have adequate resources, and yet they refused to. It was concerning these that he said, if anyone is not willing to work, let them not eat. And then again, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ for them to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You know, the fourth commandment speaks to the issue of work too. That might seem like a strange thing to say if you're familiar with what the fourth commandment is. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, It may sound strange for me to say this is about work, but think of it. The Sabbath day is to be a day for rest and for worship. But we should not forget what the other six days are for. They are for work. We're to be diligent in our work. We are to rest and worship. Rest from what? What are we to set aside on the Sabbath day? We're to set aside work. In fact, I think this is one argument that can be made for the permanence of the Sabbath. There are so many Christians who say, no, the Sabbath day is done away with. That was an old covenant thing. They're they're mistaken on so many levels. But one argument that could be made is this. Well, then, is the principle of work done away with too? Are we no longer to work? Are are we in agreement now with the Thessalonians? I guess we are, you know. Every day is a Sabbath day. Every day is a rest day for us. No, not, not true. This pattern of six and one remains. Why? Because the new heavens and new earth is not here yet. It is not here yet. And so here I am saying that the fourth commandment actually speaks to this. We are to rest, and we are to rest from something. We are to rest from diligent work as we seek to procure possessions so as to provide for ourselves and those under care, even if the Lord would bless us to be able to share with those who are in need. The third thing that emerged in these catechism answers that we read is that the Eighth Commandment forbids us from squandering or wasting our possessions. Instead, we are to manage them well and use them for good and for the glory of God. I think here of the parable of the prodigal son who gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And what did he do there? He squandered his property in reckless living. That is Luke 15, 13. The parable is not about that point exactly, but I think it is telling that this rebellious son, he took his father's possessions, he took the things that his father had given to him, and he he went off to a far country and he squandered what he had there. Certainly there is a warning for us in this parable to not do the same. We are to be careful with the possessions that the Lord has given to us. We're to remember that they are a gift from God. We're to appreciate them. We're to use them wisely as good stewards. We're to use them for good, for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom and for God's glory. The Eighth Commandment compels us to do this. Four, the Eighth Commandment requires us not only to seek our own prosperity, but the prosperity of others too. We're to seek our own prosperity. We're to seek the prosperity of others too. And I hope that you are not bothered that I have said we are to seek our own prosperity. I know this congregation well enough to know that you're probably a little sensitive towards that word, prosperity. We don't like the prosperity preachers, do we? Uh, We see that as a, a form of false teaching to be avoided. And yes, I agree that the so called prosperity gospel is to be rejected. It's a distortion of the truth, it's no gospel at all. But we must 
Be careful not to overreact. The scriptures have an awful lot to say about money and the attainment of wealth. The scriptures, in fact, encourage us to to better our positions, to be careful with our money, to make wise investments, to store up for a so-called rainy day. The scriptures and the Proverbs in particular have a lot to say about this. Christians should be diligent in their work. They should be careful with their money. They should make wise investments and save. There's nothing at all wrong with prosperity. The trouble is not money, but when we fall in love with money. In fact, many sincere and beloved Christians have been quite poor as our Savior was. Others have been rich. But we are to be simply this, responsible. We are to be hardworking, diligent, and wise. The Lord may bless us with great wealth. It may be that we live with very little in this world. We're to submit ourselves to Him and to His will. We are to be responsible. We're to be diligent in our work. We're to be wise. But notice this. We are to seek our own prosperity, but not in a selfish way. Not in a selfish way. We're to be concerned with the prosperity of others too. Again, listen to Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal. This is not a legitimate way for you to, to, to gain wealth. But rather do this. Labor. Doing honest work with your own hands. And then again, Paul says, so that we may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice that. Pursue wealth, pursue prosperity, be responsible, labor with your own hands, but do not forget to share with those who are in need around you. And consider what Acts 2.44 and following says about the early Christians. All who believed were together and had all things in common, the text says. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This text here is so important in so many ways. It tells us what the the practice of the early church was. It says something to us about the culture of the early church as well. The early Christians, they had everything in common. Those who were wealthy were willing to sell their possessions and distribute to those who had need. Now later Paul has to say to the Thessalonians, I do not mean if a man is unwilling to work that you're to feed him. Don't feed that one. He's to work with his own hands. Nevertheless, where there are legitimate needs within the congregation, we're to care for one another. We are to pursue prosperity, yes, and success in this world, sure, but not in a greedy way. We're to hold on to our possessions with an open hand, not a closed hand. We're to be generous with others. And No, this passage is not promoting communism. Uh, Those who were well-to-do, notice they chose to sell what they had so that they might care for those in need. There's a choice here. Goods were not taken from the rich and given to the poor by those who had authority in the church. Goods were not taken from the rich and given to the poor by those who had authority in the government. Those who were wealthy sold what they had and willingly gave to those who were in need. And that is the difference. Personal property, we are to see, was respected in the early church. If aid was to be given, it was to be given freely. In fact, to take from the rich and to give to the poor, either with ecclesiastical authority or civil authority, is theft. It is is a government-sanctioned form of theft. 
And that seems to be one of the points of the story of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. It is not the only point, not even the main point, but it seems to be a point. Ananias and Sapphira sold some land that they had. And they gave some of the proceeds to help those in need. But they lied and they said that they gave it all. Do you remember that story? The two of them died because of this. The Lord put them to death. Um, This is a rather extreme story, but it's a story that helps us to see that God does indeed have concern for the purity of His church. You may sin, and it might be a private sin. The Lord sees it, and He will not tolerate this in the church. This passage warns us about that. But it also says something to them. It says something to us regarding how we are to view personal property within the church. Ananias came came before Peter, and Peter said to him, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Listen to this. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Do you see it? Peter says to Ananias, I can't say his name, Ananias, excuse me, while it remained unsold, it, it was yours. It was yours to do whatever you wished with it. It was yours. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So even, even after you sold the land, you could have kept all the money for yourself. You could have given a little. You could have given a lot. You could have given it all to the church. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, man but to God. What was the problem here? What did the Lord judge Ananias and Sapphira for? It was their deceit. They were not obligated to sell the land at all or to give any of the proceeds from the land should they have chosen to sell it. It was their personal property. The issue here was deceit. But the remark, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own, is very significant. Personal property must be respected in the civil realm. Personal property must be respected also in the church. What is yours is yours. You may do with it what you wish. The Lord has given it to you. He has entrusted you with wealth, with property. It it is yours. You must remember that you are a steward of this gift from God. Of course, you must be generous, generous, but it must come from your heart to give. 1 John 3, 17-18 comes to mind. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What is John doing here except exhorting the Christian church to be generous? He's not doing this in an authoritative way, stating that they must do this or that. But he is saying, listen, if you have the world's goods and you see someone in genuine need and you close your heart to them, how could the love of God dwell in you? If God's love dwells in you, you'll be... You'll be compelled uh, to, to do good to your neighbor, to do good to your brother or sister in Christ. Little children, let us not love in word or talk. Don't talk about love, but in deed and in truth. So talk about love and then follow through with action. The fifth thing that stuck out to me in these answers that these catechisms have provided is that we must keep our hearts free from covetousness and discontentment. These moral laws, all of them are to be kept from the heart. Remember the first table is summed up that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second table of God's moral law summed up with the words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This commandment also is to be kept 
from the heart. Stealing is an action. It's something that we do. But it's to be kept from the heart. So we must keep our hearts free from covetousness and discontentment. To covet is to want what others have as your own. Covetousness is directed towards our fellow man. It's directed towards others. When we covet, what what are we looking at? We're, We're looking out at other people. We're saying, I wish I had those possessions as my own. I wish I had that family, etc. Uh, we, we, we covet in relation to other people. To be discontent is to be dissatisfied with your place in life. I, I think discontentment, though, our eyes are fixed not on other people, but upon God. When we are discontent, we look to God and we complain against Him that things are not otherwise. Discontentment is directed towards God, ultimately. Even if you don't realize it, that is where your discontentment is directed towards And it is not hard to see that the sins of covetousness and discontentment lead to violations of the Eighth Commandment. Why do people steal? Why do they take what is not theirs, either by deceit or by force? Is it not because they have covetousness in their heart? Is it not because they are dissatisfied with their place in life and with their current possessions? Uh, This does drive men to violate the Eighth Commandment indeed. 1 Timothy 6.6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. I do love the phrase, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That phrase is is very memorable, isn't it? This is a precious thing to live a godly life, to live in obedience to God's law, And to have this gift of contentment in the heart. But the rest of the passage is very powerful. Because here Paul, writing to Timothy, is warning him about all of the ruin, all of the destruction that flows from a discontented heart. Discontentment in the heart leads men and women to do all sorts of foolish things. It produces so many vile things. It leads men into so many different kinds of temptation, into snares, into sinful and harmful desires. Discontentment in the heart plunges people into ruin and destruction. So we must be very careful, brothers and sisters, with discontentment in the heart towards God, with covetousness in the heart as it pertains to others. And the Tenth Commandment, as you know, is this, you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. We'll come to the Tenth Commandment eventually, but I will want you to see when we get there that this commandment regarding covetousness, it, it addresses the heart. It reminds us that we're to keep the heart pure before God and man, and that all of these other commandments are violated when we fail to do that very thing. You know, this sermon has already been filled with many suggestions for application. I'll conclude now by rapidly stating just a few more to further stimulate your thinking on this important matter. First, let us take the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, into consideration as we formulate our political views and seek to promote 
justice within our society according to our gifts, callings, and opportunities. Let us take the Eighth Commandment with us, in other words, into the civil or political realm. Yes, the Eighth Commandment is to be applied by individuals acting as individuals, but it is also to be obeyed by individuals acting with governmental authority. Stated differently, individuals do often violate the Eighth Commandment, but governments do too. In fact, I'm sure it could be argued that the greatest violations of the Eighth Commandment throughout history have been perpetrated not by individuals acting as individuals, but by individuals acting with governmental power. Think of it. I think the greatest violations of the Eighth Commandment have been committed by those who have government power. Given what has been said regarding the Eighth Commandment, what should our views be concerning taxation, government spending, and the redistribution of wealth amongst the population? What should we think of political and economic theories such as socialism, communism, and various forms of capitalism? What should we think about forms of currency, the manipulation of currency, and the manipulation of markets? What should we think about government-enforced lockdowns which drive businesses under and force people into unemployment? And on and on I could go. The Eighth Commandment applies to all of these things. My point is this. Governments are to be concerned with matters of retributive justice as it pertains to crimes against persons. I think their focus should be very limited. But beware, governments can quickly become the perpetrators of great injustice. Let us not forget that those who govern are accountable to God. They are to honor God's moral law as they seek to establish and uphold the laws of the land. And though it is true that not all Christians are called to engage in politics to the same degree, all ought to seek the good of the cities and nations in which we live. And so we must at least pray that God's morality would be respected in our land. And those who are gifted, called, and have the opportunity to make an impact in the civil realm are to be sure that they act according to God's moral law. So much of what goes on in the world is outside of our control, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we feel very helpless, don't we? The one thing that we can control is our personal behavior. And so let us, Christians, the church, be sure to keep the Eighth Commandment in thought, in word, and indeed, as we trust in Christ. And so I say to you, brothers and sisters, do not steal. Do not take from others what is rightfully theirs, either by force or deceit. You are to be honest and upright in all of your dealings. Also, you are to be faithful in your work. Do honest work, brothers and sisters. That is to say, do work that is not inherently sinful. That can be difficult to find work that is not inherently sinful sometimes. But do work that is not inherently sinful. Work that provides some good or service to others. Work that provides for your own needs and the needs of those under your care. Whatever your calling, no matter if you are blue collar or white collar, no, no matter if you are a stay-at-home mom or retired, do not be idle. Even if you are retired, do not be idle, brothers and sisters, but give yourselves to the service of the Lord according to your ability, according to your calling. We are to use our time and energy for good and for the glory of God. We are to take pleasure in our work, brothers and sisters, even if it is not your passion. How can you take pleasure 
in work that is not your passion. Well, you may take pleasure in it knowing that God has called you to provide for yourself and others, and He has provided this way for you to do it. And so all work, provided that it is honest work, is good work. Whatever you are doing, do it with thankfulness in your hearts, to the best of your ability and to the glory of God. We are to take our work seriously, brothers and sisters. You know, I feel compelled to say just a brief word about gambling. I preached a little more extensively on this in an afternoon sermon a while ago. It must have been a sermon on the Eighth Commandment. Um, Gambling has grown in popularity, I think largely because it's so accessible online. And I've grown convinced that gambling is a violation of the Eighth Commandment, properly understood. In gambling, if you win, you're a thief. If you lose, you squander what the Lord has given to you. And I do not have the time to flesh this out for you. Again, I think I've done this before. But in brief, when a gambler wins, notice this, he only takes, he does not give. This is not work. When a gambler wins, he only takes, he does not give. This is not a legitimate way to earn a living. It is not honest work. We're called to do honest work, and this is not honest work. It is a form of thievery. In honest work, both the worker and the employer receive something. When done right, both walk away with a smile on their face, in other words. Not so with the gambler. The goal is only to take and not to give. Stated differently, the goal is to better your position while worsening the position of others. This is not in accord with the Eighth Commandment. It makes no difference that the others have agreed to it. Gambling is not an honest and God-honoring way to procure wealth. And so let us be faithful in our honest work, brothers and sisters. And then also I would say this, let us live simply in this world. Let us live a simple lifestyle. A life not in love with the things of this world. A life content with basic provisions being met. Let us live simply so that we might share with those who are in need. Also, I will add, do not squander your time or money on things like games or on meaningless pursuits. You understand, brothers and sisters, we only have so many hours and so many days here on this earth. Yes, there is a time for relaxation. Yes, there is a time for um, games even. Uh, If used in the right way, they could be a very good thing and they could even give glory to God used in the right way. But let us not squander our time or money on games or on meaningless pursuits. Let us live in a way that counts for eternity. And that includes the use of our resources, time and money being two resources. Let us be sure to manage our possessions wisely, brothers and sisters. And finally, let us pursue contentment in God and in Christ. Indeed, we know and we have been learning more and more together as a congregation that true satisfaction is found not in the things of this world, but in Christ. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would make us morally mature. Make us holy as you are holy, O God. We thank you that you have made us holy by the shed blood of Christ, 
that through faith in Him our sins are washed away. Positionally, we are justified before You. Relationally, we become Your children. All of this received by faith alone and by Your grace alone. We thank You for the Gospel, O God. But make us holy in our day-to-day lives, O Lord. You have called us to this. You have redeemed us for this purpose so that we might worship and serve You. And so, help us to make progress in this regard. Teach us Your law. Convict us of sin where it is present, O God. Give us victory over all sin. Enable us by Your Word and by Your Spirit to live as You have called us to live. And as it pertains to the Eighth Commandment, O God, help us not to steal, but to be faithful to do honest work and to provide for ourselves and those under our care. Even enable us, O God, by blessing us so that we might have something to share with those in need. May we do this out of sincere love for you and for our neighbor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.